Welcome to the very first episode of the Inside Rare Diseases monthly podcast from Centergene, where we are on a mission for life-changing answers. I'm your host, Ben Legg, and today we're asking the question, can genetics close the gap? But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about why we're here today and what we actually want to achieve with this podcast. The unfortunate fact is that today, there are estimated to be approximately 350 million people around the world suffering from a rare disease. The European Commission has calculated that one in 17 people will be affected by a rare disease at some point in their lives. However, due to the different variations and symptoms of what we call rare diseases, these can be unbelievably difficult to diagnose and treat with anywhere between seven to 10,000 rare diseases having been identified internationally, and a patient waits on average seven years to actually receive a diagnosis. In fact, 30% of patients don't even reach their fifth birthday. So we're here to shine a spotlight on rare diseases. Uh, we want to give you the latest insights and developments that are happening for patients, uh, whether that be in treatments, uh, technology advancements, insights into diagnosis, or insights from families who are affected by rare diseases. We hope that by increasing awareness and, and promoting understanding, we might offer some help to a physician identifying a rare disease or an undiagnosed patient looking for answers, or even a medical student wanting to gain a better understanding of, of what is a special and often an overlooked area of medical expertise. So how do we even define what a rare disease is and, and isn't? Well, in the United States, it's defined as any disease or condition that affects fewer than 200,000 people in the US or about 1 in 1,500 people. The European Commission on Public Health defined them as life-threatening or chronically debilitating diseases which are of such low prevalence that special combined efforts are needed to address them, with low prevalence being defined as one in 2,500 people. So by definition then, these numbers include rare cancers such as childhood cancers and other well-known conditions such as cystic fibrosis, Huntington's disease and, and forms of genetic Parkinson's disease. So it's rare enough that the individual type or variation of a disease is very low, very rare, but the number of patients suffering from rare diseases is actually very, very large. It's been reported that more patients die from rare diseases than of cancer. Unfortunately, 90% of those patients suffering from rare diseases are undiagnosed. And even for those who have received a diagnosis, there are only 5% of rare diseases that actually have meaningful therapies available. So where do we start? Well, it's estimated that 80% of rare diseases are genetic in origin or hereditary. With that in mind, genetics seem to be an excellent place for us to start the podcast, with today's topic of discussion being, can genetics close the gap? So to help me answer this question today, I'm pleased to introduce our very first guest speaker, Professor Peter Bauer, MD. Now, Peter serves as the Chief Medical and Genomic Officer at Centergene, and he received his board certification in human genetics in 2006. He previously headed the Molecular Diagnostic Laboratory at the Institute of Medical Genetics and Applied Genomics at the University Hospital at Tübingen, 
And Peter has actually authored more than 250 peer-reviewed publications in neurogenetics, oncogenetics, cardiogenetics, and sequencing technology. Um, so Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks Ben for the intro and welcome everybody. So I'm really pleased that we kicked off this concept, which was close to my heart already a couple of years, but then pandemic of course put quite some uh, other topics on top of uh, uh, this, this one. Nonetheless, I think um, if we are there uh, with uh, such an important thing like uh, diseases that affect uh, millions of patients around the world, I think it's on all of us to make a difference, to contribute and as well help uh, to, as you said, close the gap. So uh, probably that's uh, the mission here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and thank you for Peter. I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. So look, what we're talking about today, can genetics close the gap? Look, I, ex I suspect you can actually explain what the gap is more scientifically than I can. So look, what is the gap when we're talking about rare diseases and, and why does it exist? Yeah, I think, Ben, it's a story that started probably 10, 15 years ago when uh, the patient organizations, lay organizations, and politics started to put rare, uh, rare diseases uh, on the desk and said, well, before it was called orphan, now it's rare. And I think in the future, we will understand that everybody has uh, uh, rare diseases all over uh, throughout life, which means the gap is first and foremost uh, awareness, where genetics is probably not the contributor, but benefits from raised awareness but then uh, the question is oh how comes am i affected as well do i have to think about rare diseases and uh, then even more if you realize that it's pretty close to your personal life uh, it's about uh, the therapeutics and both uh, don't uh, succeed without an accurate diagnosis. I think we have to talk about the value of uh, a diagnostic genetic test mm -hmm. in rare diseases and then understand even uh, what we can go going forward. So uh, it's a three-step uh, where one has already been done, so uh, awareness is pretty high, but now we have to deliver on the gap of patients and families not knowing about them having a rare disease, mm -hmm. and the next step uh, to get it to uh, not only a diagnosis, but as well a treatment. Absolutely. And of course, uh, being able to, to get that first diagnosis can, can really change the lives for a lot of people. Um, so, so why the focus on genetics specifically? I mean, should there be other avenues to explore? Or is 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 this the 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 golden bullet? Would you say? Yeah, good question. I think uh, it's a little bit my my home field because I'm a geneticist. Nonetheless, I think uh, it was always in close um, partnership where kind of the understanding and. Uh, promotion of rare diseases in the public awareness and uh, the the promotion of genetic tools uh, helped each others. And what is the cause? It's a little bit that uh, you already said, 80% uh, have a genetic contributions. Uh, and with our tools that we have established over the last uh, two decades in molecular diagnostics, we really can now catch up with this huge demand, which means uh, 20 years ago, we know as well about cystic fibrosis, 
but we did only diagnose patients when we had a very clear and distinct uh, suspicion. Uh, as there are 8,000 uh, rare diseases out there, nobody in the world, no child neurologist, no adult neurologist is able to, to do the proper differential diagnosis for those diseases. And therefore, without genetics, it ended just with a big bucket of a mixed uh, clinical diagnosis. We will talk maybe later on Parkinson's disease, which is a great example. And so only with the genetic tools, we can stratify, we can give uh, in a big bucket like uh, childhood epilepsy, we can discriminate between those that have a metabolic genetic form of epilepsy, which is often treatable, those that have maybe those forms that need gene therapy, and those that do not do not have genetic forms and still yet need to be researched more intensively. So uh, it's an interplay between the outside world, which is the observation of these diseases, and kind of the hidden inside world, which is the genetic code, which we understand better and better with uh, the uh, technological development that brings it to an ideal gap closer. Is there other avenues to explore? Definitely. I think uh, genetic is only kind of the first letter of the answer. And mm -hmm. so we have to start there because it's robust. Uh, we can transfer it throughout the world. And rare disease is uh, a phenomenon of the global population. It's not a country issue. It's not a, a, a continent issue. We have to uh, unite uh, all the power we have in understanding that. And therefore, we need as well tools that we can export throughout the world. Genetics with very robust DNA, which is just a an, um, kind of a characteristic of the molecule uh, um, is primed to be investigated. There are others like RNA or metabolites. We call it multiomics, and probably we'll touch on that uh, later in this podcast series. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, it would not have a solid basis without genetics. Therefore, this is the foundation, uh, but uh, we have to build a huge building block of insights on these genetic foundations of rare diseases to overcome kind of the limitations and uh, close the gap towards therapy. Right. So, look, um, coming back to the, the the genetics being, I guess, the, the first letter, as you say, of the, the, the code that we look at, I mean, um, not everybody is is au fait with what it means. I think of genetics, I think of the, the Human Genome Project, I think of DNA, but, you know, I, I don't necessarily know how that relates to um, finding a diagnosis. I mean, how, do, how does that work? Just sorry, just for, for clarification, do, do I um, go into my doctor and then what, they put it into a machine, they look at my DNA and my DNA says, yes, you've got Parkinson's. Is, is it that simple? Well, let's say uh, probably you described the target picture in five years. At the moment, it's not yet simple, but we are working on those solutions. And at the moment, even more complex, uh, the offers made uh, and the consistency of the workup heavily depends on country uh, uh, and the definition of healthcare in countries. So mm -hmm. uh, one example in Germany, for example, uh, it is possible to get genetic analysis with an indication, meaning the doctor uh, asked the question, is, uh, let's say, this liver disease a genetic one? And then he can send out a sample and uh, the lab is taking this question, uh, usually is doing a, a sequencing of uh, at least the genes known for liver disease, 
maybe even exome sequencing where all the genes known in the human genomes are analyzed at once and then looks at all the variations seen in this uh, genetic code and doing an assessment and interpretation whether there is a plausible cause of the symptoms found on a DNA level. And then we do kind of this genotype, which is the sequencing, and the phenotype, which is the liver disease correlation, and come back and tell the doctor, look, we have probably a, a solution that gives you a diagnosis. Uh, it's uh, primary ciliary uh, cirrhosis, uh, uh, biliary cirrhosis, for example. And so um, with this diagnosis, then, of course, uh, doctor and the family can start to do the prognosis of the disease can look into uh, therapies and get as well in a context where they can connect with other individuals, often via social medias that help them as well to understand better what mm -hmm. is now uh, to be organized. But in principle, uh, in the middle of that, there is a blood sample of a patient being sent to a laboratory that is doing genetic analysis, which is high technology, uh, and then... Uh, medicals uh, and bioinformatics together work on the data to come back with a, a diagnosis and a medical report. Right. Well, I mean, that it, it sounds very comprehensive. It sounds like that that's definitely the, the route to go, the, the way you put it. Um, but I mean, we, we also understand that, you know, it can take a really long time for, for patients to, to find a diagnosis. I mean, why the focus on genetics? Are people exploring other avenues or, or can you talk a bit about why that's happening? Yeah, let's say why is genetics so strong? I think uh, the strength of genetics is that we can compare results all over the world, which means if I connect with a human geneticist in Canada or mm. in uh, in India and we talk about the same variant in the very same gene, we all have a concept and a terminology and uh, as well a lot of uh, additional resources and information to come to uh, conclusions and as well to, to give guidance on that case. If we would do the very same, let's say, with liver enzyme levels, which are measured on a routine level as well <laughs> in all countries all over the world, mm -hmm. we see that you cannot communicate uh, the, the, the value because uh, you have different definitions, different uh, parameters to be assessed. And so there the language is not so common, which means really uh, genetics uh, was particularly strong in the standardization of uh, what is the rare disease catalog and how do we diagnose it. Uh, we are pretty advanced there. Nonetheless, uh, as you ask, um, is it enough? No, it's not enough because uh, the genetic analysis is just uh, a state information, which means you have the risk to develop a disease. doesn't tell you when, doesn't tell you how severe, uh, and some of the individuals even step away from that risk because they can balance that. So there's a lot to be learned around um, the genetic analysis, and uh, I have to make a strong point that mm -hmm. uh, things like a genetic determinism do not exist. In, in real life, there's always variability, and you will be surprised how many uh, variations, but as well uh, mechanisms to avoid things have been found uh, in the evolution of uh, humans, uh, which mm -hmm. we still are not uh, totally aware of. Yeah, it was it was something I was going to ask you. You, you mentioned, you know, um, coming back to the amount of, I guess, data on every single gene in the in the genetic code. I, I imagine that's a lot. I mean, we're mm -hmm. talking millions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they, they, 
It's a lot, yeah. We're talking 5 million variants per individual yeah, on wow. average to be found. Uh, and you need only one or two to define uh, a severe disease, which means you really have to be smart in filtering uh, these observations towards uh, a small subset that is relevant for this individual at a given point in time. And this can even vary. So uh, this dynamic form of interpretation is key, not right. just to have a, a, a static picture, but give it the, the, I always call it the colors of life, which means uh, what are the dynamics in there. And that's a nice way of putting it. So, so I mean, it, it really is a, a needle in a haystack. And I imagine that it, you you are talking about, um, you know, talking to, to physicians in different countries and, and looking for these patterns. I imagine humans are different, right? So are the genes that I have different to the genes that, that has somebody else? Is that a factor to take into account as well? Yeah, definitely. However, uh, I think the first observation we had uh, when we started doing uh, genome sequencing at scale, at scale was most humans are pretty similar. So yeah. there is <laughs> there is a huge overlap in uh, what is our genes. Mm -hmm. And there is small but decent and sometimes uh, decisive variation that gives us different uh, appearances uh, and, of course, different susceptibilities for disease. So overall, it's all about to find these nuances that make it uh, but made that, that made an essential difference mm -hmm. uh, among a pool of information that really is very, very common. And uh, so if you look into the mere amount of data, I think this is one of the key contributors where we still see that we have to work on an automated system and help as well us and the people working with uh, the results to have uh, a consistent uh, yet dynamic understanding of what we found because uh, our uh, evidence, of course, is as well growing over time mm. and therefore genetic information should always be ideally up to date. I was going to ask about that. I think the the word you use, dynamic, is is really apt because I mean, with the um, the amount of scientific publications that are coming out, I mean, I see you've you've done over two hundred and fifty yourself. Now, coming back to the the international point, I mean, international alignment on on how to deal with rare diseases remains an issue, right? I I, I know yeah. that even the definition changes from country to country. I mean, yeah. realistically speaking, with, with all of the, the, the new dynamic um, knowledge coming out and different approaches in, in different countries and how they, they treat that data, like, is, is a genetic test kind of a realistic approach as, as a universal answer? Can, can we do that? Will that help? Yeah. Good question. I think uh, first and foremost, the answer is yes. So uh, the test it itself is generic and open to all humans, which means uh, we, we do not focus primarily on those where the test has been developed at or where we have uh, the biggest experience. Nonetheless, accessibility to testing, of course, is very, very different. So, of course, in the Western countries, uh, all healthcare systems have implemented at least some kind of access to DNA sequencing and then molecular testing for rare diseases. However, in developing countries and uh, especially in those uh, that are underdeveloped yet, of course, you can imagine that we uh, lack the diagnosis in hundreds of thousands of children that would have uh, maybe even uh, treatable diseases. And there, just one example, 
we worked uh, on a very uh, accessible uh, test that was limited in scope, so only metabolic diseases. Uh, but we published a study that showed that we could diagnose uh, 30 to 40% of children uh, with uh, suspected metabolic metabolic diseases with just a small subset of, of genes, only 200 of 20,000 known. Wow. Uh, and therefore, I think um, there is a need for specific approaches for uh, the healthcare environment we face. Nonetheless, you can have a very early and significant uh, game changer through genetics. And there the gap was the families didn't know about the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Of course, they couldn't seek treatment. We have shown that uh, in these countries, 60 to 70% of the children that get a genetic diagnosis have a change in treatment. Uh, and of course, these rather poor families um, will then invest their resources into making the best out of the diagnosis and not spending the money on diagnostic test for the search of a diagnosis. So I think it's a game changer and, and uh, it's a huge gap where uh, uh, a genetic test can make a difference. Wow. So that was that was very um, specific selected targeting. So do you think that's the way forward or do you think that the whole genome kind of looking at it? Like, what, what's your yeah. opinion there? Thanks for the question, Ben, because uh, it's as well something where I started at Centogene because I wanted to drive genome sequencing, knowing that this is the uniform diagnostic approach uh, with the genetic analysis going forward. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, being seven years with the company, I think we truly managed to, to offer this genome sequencing. However, I would not go into countries like Egypt and Pakistan and say, you should do genome sequencing, everything else. Uh, is not enough. I would say there is good uh, stepping stones in between to keep up as well with education, with awareness, uh, with resourcing to get sooner or later, uh, hopefully rather sooner, to a genome sequencing environment. But look at the numbers. So uh, there's hundreds uh, of millions undiagnosed children out there. Uh, mm -hmm. And we just don't have the resources to do genome sequencing in those uh, sheer amount of uh, children and families. However, if you have a decent test that is maybe only a tenth uh, the, the costs, that would make the change now. And then you can develop to have the best test available as soon as possible. But I think the roadmap is very clear. Uh, sooner or later in the developed countries, probably in the next two or three years, genome sequencing will be uh, the majority of the tests offered because mm -hmm. better quality, uh, more robust data, uh, and of course, uh, as well, more insights into the, as I called it, the the the, the colors of the diagnosis where uh, modifying factors need to be uh, seen and interpreted in parallel. As you say, you know, the the roadmap itself certainly seems clear, as you say, but. I mean, uh, technology advances, which is fantastic. But the the point you make about, um, I guess, accessibility, we could call it, um, for mm -hmm. for um, underdeveloped countries. I mean, data alone from the sequencing, with all of the millions of, of of lines of code, I can imagine, is not only taking up a vast amount of of, of resources, but is also really um, expensive and resource intensive. Uh, so. Uh, even even with that clear roadmap of, of 
two, three, four, five, ten years down the line where this is more of a, a daily result. Um, do you think we need to then um, focus on on getting the, the the whole genome sequencing faster, or or developing more of of these um, more specific tests for countries, or how how do we get these costs down? I guess is yeah. Is I think uh, probably production costs are not so much an issue. It's now down uh, to a couple of hundreds euros per test. Uh, wow. we, we started 15 years ago with 150,000. Uh, now we have broken it down two orders of magnitude, which is uh, unbelievable. However, I think the topic is what happens with this mass data if it sits around and nobody's able to interpret the data or doesn't have the right tools? So everything about bioinformatics and automated systems, uh, maybe with as well the help of machine learning and, and so on, uh, that's needed because we cannot train so many people mm -hmm. <laughs> in these specialities. Uh, and so the scale-up, I think, will depend on our uh, abilities to... Uh, implement digital workflows in the healthcare system and then have uh, decent and high functioning software slash bioinformatics that is kind of a decision support on those data sets for, um, for the physicians uh, on site because um, we, we have a lack of, of experts and uh, that will be something we cannot solve as fast as we can solve technical issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so does that mean in terms of you know the approach of, I guess a, a, a lack of manpower, let's call it, is, is one of the yeah. issues. Um, does that mean that you know specialist companies um, in rare diseases, you know, do they need to be everywhere so that people can access it, or or you know how, what does this this model look like to help people faster? Well, I think in the in the digital world, you don't have to be somewhere to to help people or to uh, support uh, healthcare systems, and therefore it's really rather to put the intelligence into the the, the software and the systems uh, that can then be very scalable. Mm -hmm. I think many of the steps we do right now uh, have to be described and then have to be coded uh, sooner or later because uh, I think it's possible and uh, code and code. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. There's always an upside and a downside to any process, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, I don't want to be cynical, but, and I, I'm, I'm hearing, you know, that this is a lot of good things, but, I mean, there must be weaknesses to this approach as, as well. Um, what I guess is the, the weakness of genetics in this process? What aren't we looking at? Yeah, I think if you go back to uh, the the days when the human genome was published and then we had this big press release. Everybody was talking about now we have this book of life, we open it, and then we make better medicines. Yeah? Mm -hmm. All the answers kind of, are here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's not answers. We just have an access to data, but we learned that uh, the data is not one data set, it's not 10, it's even not 100,000 individuals that represent uh, the human population in health and disease, it's probably only achieved if everybody is sequenced and the data is available for analysis and interpretation. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. And the weakness is a little bit that um, it seems to be so 
clear and so easy there is a code and then you go from the genetic code into the protein, into the function, into the disease. But what you shouldn't forget is this is quite a stretch and uh, effects are sometimes not kind of deterministic, which means there is different ways this can develop still if you have one genetic driver. This means uh, because it was so easy and therefore it seemed to be low risk. We have invested a lot into kind of the, uh, I would call it the genetic industry, which is then the production of data and the uh, interpretation of huge data sets. But we have neglected that uh, other layers uh, that are as important, which is the phenotype, but many steps in between from the genotype to the phenotype. So the dysfunction in the cell starts with the RNA, goes to the protein. Then we have metabolites that are changed. And then we have organs that uh, look different and do not function. And then we have organisms. So we have to to close this chain of evidences to have a robust system to um, to predict and rightly interpret as well the variation of things uh, when we look at uh, a cohort of patients all having the same diagnosis, which means one weakness was just it was so successful that it uh, kind of uh, suffocated other approaches in other dimensions. So uh, mm -hmm. say transcriptomics, metabolomics, we are by far not so strong there, at least when it comes to rare diseases, this has to be built up because we need these uh, in-between data to as well have holistic data sets on the interpretation on disease progression, disease severity, and even more uh, the prediction of how we can treat that condition. What is really wrong on a cellular level, on a molecular level, and where do we have uh, the right targets for treatment? And so I think that's where we have to focus our attention, integrate the data with other level layers of data, and then make it really a holistic uh, machine that gives us uh, really new insights into uh, who is diagnosed with a disease, why is there a phenotype, and can we then as well target special therapies to special groups of patients. So, um, so. You heard it. It's not really a weakness. You cannot blame the technology, mm -hmm. but you can probably blame the researchers and the scientific environment that we have a little bit blindfolded towards genetics in the last 20 years, very successfully. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I'm a patient. I've received a diagnosis. Now, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. There is a treatment potentially available. Now, often you hear that um, people are getting treatments and it's a little bit of trial and error. How much is too much, you know, um, mm -hmm. and, and so on. You mentioned, like, are you suggesting that through genetics um, you can monitor or predict the the efficacy or the level of treatment needed for a potential patient? Is that something that's that's possible as well? I would say it's at least a very important uh, cornerstone of such a process. We need more than just genetics, but we wouldn't be successful without genetics. So uh, it's a prerequisite, and on top of that. We have to add uh, ideally as robust uh, other uh, huge data sets or let's say high resolution data sets that help us to, to understand these differences. And you know what, if you work in the process as a physician and I do the genetic counseling, of course, 
first I meet the individuals with uh, a new diagnosis and they say, hey, uh, Peter, I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Now I'm afraid it could be genetic. Can you help me? And I tell him, yes, I can help you. We can do a, a very easy test. I need a drop of blood. And then uh, four weeks later, we can meet again and talk about the result. Mm -hmm. And now it gets interesting. Uh, then either you have a negative result and the patient might be happy because it's not genetic. Mm -hmm. Or you might have a positive result, which means you identify the genetic cause of uh, his Parkinson's disease. And he's happy because he said, now I know why. And now mm -hmm. specifically I can act. Uh, and probably uh, at the point of the diagnosis, every patient is both at once happy and unhappy because if he's happy about actionability, he's unhappy because he might have passed it to his children. Mm. <laughs> so that's... Uh, uh, the problem and, and vice versa, uh, you don't have access to maybe preventive treatment if you are not a genetic uh, Parkinson patient, at least in the models uh, developed right now. And then nonetheless, what is uniquely happening is patients ask, so now, good, I ended my diagnostic odyssey. I don't have to do things now that uh, cost me a lot of time and money to, to, to learn what I have, but what do I do now? Yeah. Yeah. And, and now that's, uh, I think, even the bigger gap where uh, genetics is not as strong as in mm -hmm. the diagnostic step. But mm -hmm. still, uh, as I said, uh, you can't think molecular therapy, which we call precision medicine uh, in a synonym, uh, without a genetic stratification. So it's very strong as a data point, but it's not enough to, to win the game. That's where we are. And so it's a little bit uh, the game we have now to develop that we have uh, good cards in our hands, right? So, I mean, it's it's an interesting point you make um, about, you know, the, the process from diagnosis to treatment. I I had somebody told me once that, you know, the the elation of, of finding a diagnosis finally after they'd looked for, for so long um, came at the same time as having having a nuclear bomb dropped in his family and the, yeah. all of the, the ripples of that hitting everybody that he knew as as there was the next battle to fight the next mountain to climb mm. so it was it was only the first part so it's it's an interesting kind of point you make there um mm. but just coming back to you know the i guess the future um so what i'm what i'm hearing and please correct me is that you know genetics has been our pathway to date but the the colors of life as you put it, the next 5, 10, 15, however many years, seems to be uh, exploring, you, you call them multiomics, I believe? True. Yeah, which means uh, it's still, at least in our perspective, uh, a very comprehensive laboratory test mm -hmm. that uh, delivers on high-quality data that is unsupervised, meaning I do not pick just one uh, enzyme or one metabolite or one transcript. I want to have uh, an account on all the transcripts in the blood, for example, or in some cells of the patient. And then I want to correlate the readout on that level with the variants I've seen in genetics. Why? Because it would help me, for example, to define uh, that a special disease is particular disease uh, severe because the patient has another uh, modifying factor highly expressed uh, that gives him kind of um, 
a high probability to have early complications or have intractable uh, epilepsy. Things like that, I think, will be very, very relevant in the next decade. Uh, we can't answer it with more data per patient. But this more data per patient only flies if we have big uh, databases and resources where we can find kind of models, uh, the the the, the uh, the coded picture of a disease uh, represented by a dozen or maybe 100 patients that have already been seen. Mm -hmm. And then you compare it and say, okay, it's like this extreme or it's in, in the middle of what I've seen. Uh, it's pre uh, rather early or rather late. That's all things we have to deal at that stage where the diagnosis is made and the patients ask, what is my prognosis and what are my therapeutic options? Therefore, this is kind of the multi-omic world we have to unlock uh, to take or to be successful in the next steps. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, look, um, Peter, I, I am aware that um, that we're running short on time for you, but I, I do have um, one last question, if I may. Um, you know, I think the main takeaway here for, for those who, who think that they might be suffering from a rare disease or, or are struggling to, to find a diagnosis is to, to seek out a, a genetic test, whether that's, you know, for a whole genome or, or something else. But in terms of what would your advice to be to a, a general practitioner looking for a diagnosis for their patient, or a, I think in Germany you call them a house arts, is that right? Yeah, true. Um, so what would your advice be to them if, if, they're, um, if they're trying to help somebody but they can't find a diagnosis? Yeah, I think whenever you think uh, a patient is extremely severely affected or early affected, this would be general uh, observations for uh, diseases that are more often genetic than not. Of course, uh, we cannot beat aging, for example, and uh, if you happen to see symptoms that everybody or many in your age cohort as well face, I think uh, I wouldn't start there. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is, uh, I think, two red or three red flags. One is too early. This, the, the second one is too severe. Mm -hmm. And the third one is I ask, uh, are you the only case in the family, yes or no? And you learn, no, there's one more or there's um, many more. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, it sounds like genetic, but just <laughs> be aware. We have to prove it because uh, tuberculosis was assumed to be a genetic disease as well. 150 mm. years ago because wow. you had it in the families repeatedly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. of course, we learned uh, it was not really genetic. It was something else. Yeah. So... Well, look, um, that's um, an amazing insight. Thank you, Peter. And um, look, having having some of your experience and knowledge with us is, is a genuine pleasure. So um, I'm sure our listeners are, are very grateful to you as well and for your insights. So thank you very much. Thanks, um, look, if you have any time in the future, it'd be wonderful if you could join us again sometime. How does that sound? I think we should do so. This was fun. And thanks for driving that. Uh, I'm Happy to be your guest as well, or on your guest list. <laughs> Thank you so okay. much. That'd be fantastic. Take care. Stay healthy. You See too. You. Yeah. Well, that concludes our very first episode of the Inside Rare Diseases monthly podcast from Centrogene, where we're on a mission for life-changing answers. I'm your host, Ben Legg, and today we were discussing the question, can genetics close the gap? Join us next month for episode two of our podcast as we continue on our mission for life-changing answers. 
Until then, if you'd like to find out more about rare diseases, Rare Disease Day is coming up on February 28th. It's a day for raising awareness for patients around the world. If you want to find out more, go to www.rarediseaseday.org. There you can read patient stories, you can find out about events near you, you can download assets to share on your social media accounts about rare diseases. So um, look that up. We hope that today's episode helped you see inside rare diseases a little clearer today. And if it did, you can help us help to raise awareness by telling a friend. I hope you join us for our next episode. So until then, thank you for listening.